Trail and Ultra Runners, what is going on? What's happening? Welcome to another episode of the Coopcast. As always, I'm your humble host, Coach Jason Coop, and this podcast goes right in line with our last few. It is all about anti-doping solutions and issues in the sport of trail and ultra running, all in an effort to try to forge a solution. This episode of the podcast is with somebody, one of the very few people who have actually put forth the effort to bring the community together and actually find a solution. And he got pretty darn far in that process. And it's kind of a shame that it stalled out and hopefully we can pick it back up. That is Charlie Ware. I have the utmost amount of respect for Charlie for going through what he went through, trying to make this happen. It was a really painstaking effort and I hope that comes through for uh, through this podcast that these solutions are not easy. They're going to take a lot of work, but I also hope that it inspires somebody or a group of people to really take the torch from here. We don't have to use the solution that Charlie has to date, but we can certainly use components of it in all or in part. So I wanted to come, I wanted to bring him on the on the podcast today to talk about all of those different aspects, what he felt the current pitfalls are and how we actually move forward. I cannot tell you how much admiration I have for Charlie, not only as an athlete, he's a really darn good runner, but for him taking it upon himself to do something better for the sport. That should be admired, that should be emulated, and we should absolutely build off of what he has done to date. So here we go. I'm going to get right out of the way. Here's my conversation with Charlie Ware. You recovering, right? I was going to ask you the same thing, man. I'm doing pretty good. I had a markedly average race out there. Uh, how about yourself? Yeah, yeah, I went for my first run again today and felt really good. Nice. That, that course is it's deceivingly painful, but I always recover really quick from it. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think it's because you're never really going that fast on that course because you're always bouncing up and down. Yeah. That it's a, little, it's a little easier on the body, dude. Once they get the hundred k version of that point to point. It is going to be epic. It's going to be the best 100K races in the world. I completely agree. I was talking with Joe about that after. I'm like, this race is going to be amazing. It's super difficult, completely beautiful the whole way. It's just, yeah. Yeah, I can't, I can't wait, man. I don't know. I don't think I told you this. I actually thought it was 100K until like the week before the race i met mi- i missed some oh. critical piece of communication you know and i was like oh well i guess it's only 50 miles or whatever because the website was still referring to yeah. the 100k distance that they wanted to do the covid year yeah. they had to cancel and i think joe was just like man i'll leave this up and like the field's so small we can handle it <laughs> that's hilarious i wonder if you're the only one i bet there were several people like this, this isn't what I signed up for. It's totally my fault. It's totally my fault for not paying attention to this to tell all my athletes to do, right? Pay attention to the pre-race emails. It's totally my fault. I did not pay attention to the pre-race emails. And I've been using this as an example, like raising my hand, being the idiot. I've been using this in exa- as an example that, you know, that I screw A, I screwed up too, but B, you gotta pay attention to these things because they're gonna change and sometimes that changes material like 50 miles versus hundred K. And then often it's like really simple things though, that, um, that athletes need to be aware of like canyons change course, right. Which was the same weekend. And a couple people apparently got off course, uh, cause they had like, re- they had like recon the old course or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I just think that's going to be a little bit of the norm where there's going to be some small detail whether it's the course or aid stations or crew access or something like that, that's going to change in the last minute that it's not material at the end of the day, but still people have to pay attention to. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, at least you had a shorter day out there. <laughs> yeah. I don't know, man. I was looking forward to hundred K next year, man, next year. Epic. I'm telling you, man, that's going to be so good. I can't wait. Yeah. I can't wait. All right. All right. Enough talk about Zane Gray, even though it's a cool yeah. race, we're going to talk about something else. Uh, we're going to talk about this, uh, the this, this solution that you largely spearheaded to try to get some type of anti-doping efforts into the sport of trail and ultra running. And uh, the listeners kind of like won't know a lot of the background here, but th- this is th- this is something that was really working in the background for a long period of time that if that a few people knew about 
and if and you can explain who a few people are because this is this is your deal but this is probably the first like kind of like public unveiling of uh of this right because i remember going through it um we were trying to kind of keep it like tight knit so that the media didn't have an opportunity to kind of like influence it or get their hands on it or whatever. We really wanted like the athletes to, to, to take control of it. So I feel kind of honored that you'd come on this podcast and start to, and start, and start to talk about it, considering it really was kind of under a lid for a lot of the, a lot of the workings of it. But I want to, I want you to, to take the floor here in terms of what you were trying to do and what the con- general construction of it looked like. So mm-hmm. why don't we start with that? What is the like umbrella construction of this anti-doping effort within the sport of ultra running? What did that, wh- what was that starting to look like when it was really being worked on? Okay. So, so there's quite a bit to unpack here. So I, I want to start with, um, this was about, this was all happened a couple years ago and then, we ran into some hiccups, which we'll talk about today, uh, which kind of stalled the, the movement on this project and this, uh, the collective was what we call it. Um, so now fast forward, we're two years later, COVID happened and races weren't happening and everybody kind of just checked out for a while. And I put it in the back of my mind for a while and I didn't want to think about it for a long time. And, um, now a couple things have happened in the ultra running world that I think are, you know, bringing it back up again. Uh, you had Lisa Roberts on, and I know she had talked to me about the efforts that we tried doing a couple of years ago. So, so we're bringing it back from the dead. Um, so let's start about why we, we started this to begin with. Um, so it was Terrawera a couple of years ago. Um, that was my first time doing a UTWT race uh, that was overseas. And it was the first time that I was summoned by the courts program to go get a blood test, which is their, their version of testing, um, for one of their races for elite athletes. And I did, and I went through their process. Um, uh, and I, and I kind of saw that it was a little silly. Uh, and then I'm in New Zealand and I was staying with Carrie. If you know, Carrie over there, he's an amazing guy, him and Allie. And we were talking about it and how the courts program is kind of bullshit. And especially for, if you're not living in Europe, it's, it's really just a, um, a facade of being a doping program when it's not really doing anything. And, and I courts, had, just I, to, just to, just to, before we get too far, courts is yeah. the program that a lot of European races will use in, like you said, this anti-doping, well, I'm going to use the word effort very loosely. UTMB uses it. Some of the uh, Ultra Trail world, world Tour races use it, or maybe all of them use it. Mm-hmm. But it's a program that kind of simultaneously what in their in their words does health monitoring through blood screens that are performed by uh by a runner or a person who's enrolled in the program's primary care physician so you can imagine you go in your primary care doctor they do a blood draw on you you send the results of that blood draw into the court system we'll we'll leave it at that and then they perform some race day testing services mainly at some of the major ultra marathons and the North American ultra runners really only touch this when they go to those overseas races, the, the, the majority of which are in Europe. Correct. Yeah. And, and so, you know, going through that process and, you know, it's, it's a blood test, it's not a drug test, but it comes off as though they're doing a drug testing, you know, experience for the athletes when it's, it's not really. Um, and yeah, they do the race day testing. We can get into that later, but it just didn't seem like it was anything that was effective. And if anything, it was a huge hassle um, they contacted me two weeks before I was going on an international trip and said, go somewhere and get a blood test and send us the results. And I had no idea. I took the, the, uh, the form they had to one lab and they're like, we don't even know what this is. This is like Europe and you need an American doctor to prescribe this. And I was just like running all over trying to get this blood test done when I was trying to pack for this trip. So it, it was just annoying more than anything. So I'm at Tarawera and I, I've always had this idea that it would be really cool if the athletes themselves decided, Hey, you know, we want to protect our sport. Um, let's, let's get testing done on our own. Like let's fork over our own money and say, we want to be tested and start this, uh, this program that is built by the athletes for the athletes in an effort to protect the awesome sport that we have. 
Um, so it doesn't take the road that cycling and a lot of the other endurance sports have had down the road. And so I had this conversation over a beer with, with Carrie in New Zealand. And then sure enough, the next day at the elite athlete panel in front of 300 people, he calls me out and says, Oh, Charlie, where's got a good idea for how to, bring- <laughs> I to explain this to everybody, how we can do this. That's like, how it always starts over a beer and an innocent conversation. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you're like mucked up in the weeds with something. <laughs> yeah. Well, there I am on a microphone, you know, with a microphone on stage explaining to 300 Kiwis how I think we should get drug testing in the sport. <laughs> um, and so after that, I just felt like I had to follow up on that. And so I got a lot of good feedback from the, the folks and the athletes who were there. And yeah, that is a good idea. What if we just dished over a little bit of money and we started getting tested and, you know, it could be a start of something cool. So that, I began to build some policy of how this could actually work. Um, I contacted USADA. I actually contacted a couple other private drug testing companies first um, because I didn't know if USADA was the route that we wanted to take. Um, but the other, the private companies were very expensive and I need to figure out how to do this really economically. Uh, and so with USADA, it can be done fairly economically. And my idea was that, okay, if we get 20 athletes together and we all chip in a small amount of money, we don't all need to get to be tested all the time. But what if we got six or seven tests that went out randomly to our pool of 20 people anytime throughout the year? So we could all potentially be tested, which is just as effective as us all being tested. Um, and that way we could keep the cost down. And that's kind of where the whole idea started. And so then was the very hard part of contacting a whole bunch of elite athletes and asking them if they want to fork over a bunch of money to, to get out of competition testing done on them. Uh, and the way that I set up the program was that I contacted the top 10 males and females from the Western States 100 the previous year, as well as the top 10 ultra runners of the year. Um, And so that gave me my core of elite athletes. And the reason why I picked those, that is, well, one, I was in that because I came in top 10 the year before at States, but I also learned how much you can gain from a top 10 at States. And I think that's one of the primary uh, reasons for gaining a sponsorship and, um, you know, gain some leverage in the sport as well as you, Roy. Um, so that gave me my, my initial pool of athletes. So I reached out to all the men and women in that pool and explained to them how this could work, um, how much it would cost. The cost was going to be $375 per athlete. Uh, and if all of us got in, I think it would have ordered, I think seven tests, seven to 10 tests. And there was maybe 20 or 25 of us, maybe, maybe a little bit more, maybe 30. Again, this was a couple of years ago, so I'm trying to recall it all right now. Yeah, yeah. But um, it's hundreds of dollars, not tens of thousands of dollars. Yeah, so, so that was the big thing is that, you know, altogether we pulled, you know, 15,000 bucks or whatever. Yeah. And that allowed us to order seven tests. Yeah. And, and that was that. That's all we needed. And, you know, we could all be tested any time and anybody could get it. It was completely random as, as to who it would go to. So therefore, we have a, a situation in place where everybody's aware that somebody could show up on their doorstep and say, Hey, be in a cup, uh, which to me is the only effective way of having testing. It's not race day testing. Um, it's not a, a silly little pledge or a temporary tattoo that says I run clean or whatever. Uh, so, so that was the, the, the basic idea. And then there was, I expanded this into a larger, um, a larger idea called the, the collective. So the core members are that top 10, Uroy and Western States. And that will change every year, but that's the core. And then other folks, because there's way more elite athletes out there, they can opt into the collective. And basically they would just pay their 375 and now they're in the testing pool. Uh, the way we worked it out is that we would try to grow the pool to get as many elites in there as we could. And there's ways we can do that by, you know, essentially having races agree that they will only give prize money to those who are in the collective. Right. Um, to deal with, you know, maybe some folks should probably have more of a chance of getting tested than other folks, you know, the more elite folks versus those who are kind of sub elite or B level or C level, um, we would use ITRA rankings. So for instance, for the men, if you had a ranking 800 and above, um, the idea was that 70% of the tests would go to those with rankings of 800 and above and 30% of the tests would go to those below 800. And obviously the more people that opted in, the more tests we'd be able to order. 
I want to say it's about 12 or 1300 bucks per test. And that includes the traveling to the athlete, taking the tests analysis. So it's really not that expensive if you're not looking at testing everyone all the time, but just having the chance of being tested. Um, so that's it in a nutshell. And, you know, to further that, my idea was more than just drug testing for this collective. I, I thought it was a way to just make a unifying, essentially a governing body for our sport that is run for the athletes by the athletes that could tackle other things that weren't just testing. So for instance, maybe there was unequal uh, prize money for males and females at a race. Well, maybe as a collective, we could vote on that and say, we're not going to go to this race unless the, that becomes equal prize money. And it gives us power as athletes to, to have a say in our sport and help shape our sport. Um, so that to me was even more exciting than the, the, the testing component, but I thought the testing component could, be what launched the collective hundred percent. Okay. So this, this is a good opportunity to take a pause because yeah, it was a lot. <laughs> every, it was a lot, but everybody listening right now is thinking of all of the different ways to game the system because mm -hmm. when anti-doping rules eventually come up, people look at the cracks in the window. How is a doper going to slip through the crack over here and slip through the crack over there? We just mentioned the race day testing. Everybody realizes that that's really not the most effective way to do it. People still get caught all the time. We see examples of that all the time where get, people get caught on race day testing. But people are going to do the same thing with this. They're going to look at this and say, okay, there's not that many tests actually going around per the number of people that are in the pool. Somebody could not be in the pool and still go win a big race and then get into the, the collective like retroactively because they're, they'd become a member and on and on and on and on and on. And I don't think we're going to go through all of those. We might hit some of the big ones. But what I wanted to point out to the listeners is this is a proposed emph emphasis on the word proposed or was, yeah. is is we'll use is right because it's still it's active it's active until it's dead it it is a proposed start emphasis on the word words proposed start it is not the final solution and i'm gonna evoke a conversation that i had a long time ago with uh usada's former chief operating officer john frothingham on this on this on this very subject and those who the people who follow uh, anti-doping kind of around the world will certainly recognize John's name because he's been really influential uh, in the space. Uh, when when I was talking to him about this, almost in parallel to when you were coming up with this uh, collective idea, he said, listen, you're going to have to realize that initially you have imperfect yet implementable solutions out of the gate. There are going to be holes in them, and that's fine, but you have to start somewhere. And this is the start. This is kind of the start somewhere piece. So to summarize, you've got a pool of athletes that are created from performance and, well, basically from performance, Western States performance and the, and the UROI votes, right? That pool of athletes creates, essentially all kicks in a little bit of money. And they all could get randomly tested at some point. And in addition to that, there's targeted testing within a cohort of athletes that are kind of at the at, at the top based on their itcher ranking, essentially, right? Yeah, which is, you know, everybody in that core would be in that that group. Exactly. Everybody is, is, has an ITR ranking above 800 is going to be that group. Okay, so you reached out to the athletes to say... Yeah. Hey, what was, you know, what do you guys, what do you guys and gals think? And this is how I got involved in it because my, the athletes that I would, that I was working with and I still am working with, they sought my counsel on it. And uh, so I had to look through it and tell them what I thought about it. And I wholeheartedly encouraged them to keep going down it. this is an athlete focused solution, but you had a broader context because you had this big group of people that you were then saying, Hey, what do you think about it? Let's run through, we're going to have to generalize some of these because it's a yeah. big group of people, but let's kind of run through what the athletes, how the athletes were reacting to this and what the feedback you were getting was. Well, I'll start by saying that it was pretty scary to reach out to all the athletes only because, I mean, some of these men and women are like my heroes. 
<laughs> top 10 at western states top 10 uroid people yeah totally yeah like, i'm like contacting like rob Carr and you know Corey DeWalter. i'm like you know these people <laughs> i admire and like are my heroes but it, it was also easy because to be honest with you jason i really don't think there's any doping amongst this group right. of athletes and, and that's really how i was framing it and it's like it was easy to reach out because it's it's easy to ask somebody who you know you you, you admire and love all these people and you're saying our sport's awesome right now let's figure out how we can keep it that way. You know, and when it's framed that way, it's, it's not like, Oh, there's doping in our sport. We need to get it out of here. It's like, no, our sport's awesome. Let's keep it that way and just make sure we preserve what we have. So that being said, it made it a little easier to approach all the athletes. So let's talk about how they took it. And I will say that overwhelmingly everybody was game. Uh, and, and that was awesome. It took a load off right away. The responses ranged from most people just saying, cool, sounds great, I'm in. And then um, a couple of folks took some more convincing, which was nice because it, it actually made me think things out into more depth. And I'm sure those folks think I'm a huge pain in the ass, which I am. But <laughs> I, I put my salesman hat on and, and I will say that, you know, by the end of it and all my phone conversations and emails, everybody was in. Um, hmm. Maybe there was one or two folks that never got back to me and I think that might have just been the wrong email I had. Um, so it, it was very encouraging to see that everybody was in. Um, however, there was some concerns that were brought up and those concerns were very legit. And I think that's what stalled the momentum on this because I didn't quite know where to go from there. And I started losing energy with the project at that point when I got caught up on these um, concerns. So maybe that would be a good segue to go into like what, what were the issues with this and, and why it stalled out? Yeah, let's do it. And I think one, I think a big piece of framework to keep in mind about this is compared to what happens in USA track and field and uh, in cycling, other endurance sports, and even at the collegiate level is that the athletes themselves are wholly responsible for creating the policy. They're not mm-hmm. having the policy, they're not having to adopt a policy that currently exists because of the sport they play or the organization that they are in. And because of that, because the athletes are wholly responsible, you get a lot of, well, hey, I, I like this part, but I don't like this part. I don't like this part, and I really like this part. Most athletes going to even the one the going to going to the Olympics, the one partic- the ones participating participating in national championships, they don't have a say, with the very right. small exception of using their athlete representative within the organization that they're a part of as like a conduit to help create policy. Here, the athletes have one hundred percent of the say. So, it is. I mean, you you kind of alluded to having a little bit of a salesman job, and I can imagine how that went because a, a lot of athletes, and this is why it's so powerful, but also so one of the reasons why it's so powerful, but also so difficult. A lot of athletes, this is their career, and they want to do the right things for themselves. That's we're always looking out for number one, first and foremost. They want to do the right things for their career and. It's hard. It's hard to be the first. You, there are a lot more problems when you're first than when you're following. And I think that that kind of came out through some of these conversations you had with athletes. So what what were some of the stumbling blocks that you mentioned, Charlie? Okay. Yeah. So I got a little list of some of the stuff. So the first I'll say what you said there that we're creating our own uh, protocol and program here. And I think that was a little hard for folks to wrap their head around, especially when it came to things like, like pot. All right. So that was something that I had to be, it, it was addressed right off the bat. It's like, I don't want to get popped because I got marijuana in my system when I'm relaxing over the summer and I'm not even racing. Yeah. And so, you know, that was very easy to say that, well, one, it's not against um, any water rules to have pot in your system out of competition. And two, we're making our own program and we could say, we don't want marijuana tested for it's just not even a part of it. We don't care. It's not, you know, if they want to do it at race day testing, this isn't race day testing. So that was one thing right off the bat that I think folks were, you know, I mean, it's legal on the entire West coast right now. And, and <laughs> <laughs> I'm not judging anybody. I mean, go for it. So we did have to talk about that. And I think that folks understood like you can do whatever you want in your free time. That's not concerned here. But the, an important part of that is the educational component. Right. Yeah. Just the fact that water treats it as 
an incompet- a, as prohibited in competition and not out of competition. That as an that being an example of an educational point for people, I think speaks to a broader topic of education as a whole. That that part of it is, is is incredibly difficult because that's not a that is not a controversial. It's controversial in the sense of should it be legal or should it be illegal, but it's not controversially controversial in the sense that. Is it prohibited in competition or out of competition? All it takes is a little bit of education, but yet it still was an educational stumbling block is the point that I'm, that I'm trying yeah. to make. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and that's where USADO can really come into big value there with their educational program. Yep. Um, the next would be uh, the convenience and the invasiveness of out-of-competition testing. And so there's two different programs within USADA for how strict the protocols are for your whereabouts. And we're doing the, the less strict one. And so you basically just have to put a whereabouts form in, um, I think like monthly, but you just let them know if you're going on vacation or something. It's not a daily check-in, which is like what Olympians have to do. Um, and it's, it's pretty lax too. You can miss two tests. And the third test is when, you know, things will start to get serious. But it's not like at the end of the world if you went camping for the weekend and someone showed up and you weren't there. Um, so that was something we had to, to go over that it's not this invasive thing that you have to check in all the time, let somebody know where you're at all the time. Um, but you do have to make yourself somewhat available. And I understood that. I mean, nobody wants to feel like, you know, they're checking in with big brother all yeah. the time. So that was a legit thing. But I think that their lax uh, protocol that they have is um, it's, it's doable. And if you want to have testing in the sport, it's the least you can do. Um, the next would be who controls the money management. That was a little bit of a up in the air thing. So the way I had thought is that we basically create a pool of money, like an account within USADA, um, which some folks thought wasn't the best idea. And, and I actually tend to agree with them. I think ideally the collective would have its own account and we could pay USADA for their services rather than USADA running the financials. But then it's like, well, who controls that? And the, it really needs to be somebody who's not um, one of the athletes. I think that's taking people's money, paying it. So that's just kind of like the business side of it, like how, how it would work. And we got a little caught up there. Yeah. And I can tell you from uh, USADA side of things, they try to do everything and this will, we will have touched this subject in the podcast with Dr. Fedorik, which the listeners can, uh, can reference and it'll be in the show notes. Um, USADA is very, uh, they're very focused on making sure that when they do these programs with with really any entity, that the where the money comes from is completely independent from how the testing actually occurs. There's a separation of church and state that they absolutely have to go through so that the people footing the bill aren't influencing the actual process. And that happens at all levels. That happens within their UFC program, which has uh, uh, become a, a really good example for uh, other, uh, other sporting organizations to use. That's the, that is uh, true with uh, entities like USA Track and Field and USA Triathlon. That is a very important point when we're talking about all this, is that the people ultimately footing the bill need to be kind of removed from the inner operations of the actual testing protocol, who gets tested, how frequently they get tested, and things like that. Right. Yeah. So it's almost like we would need, you know, some, some other folks spearheading. Them right. Type. Right. You, you know, need to be, the athletes need to be blinded to it essentially. Right. If they're paying the bill, they need to be blinded to how the, how the tests are actually being allocated. Yeah, for sure. So you don't have Charlie in there saying, Oh, I want to test this person because they're, you know, they're racing Western States and I want that M10 spot again. <laughs> <laughs> Well, exactly. Um, yeah, I don't want to be in charge of people's money either. <laughs> uh, okay, and then uh, then we had some folks who were a little burnt out on anti-doping. Mm. Um, and, and I totally get that because all the ones that they've done are nonsense up to this point, you know. I had folks saying, like, listen, I don't want to do another pledge or put my face on another website that says I'm clean and stuff. and or like, hey, I don't think there's any doping or problem in our sport, so why, why are we doing this? It's a huge pain in the ass. And I totally get it. I get where they were coming from. Uh, but again, my my response was, yeah, let's keep it that way, man. Like, it's awesome right now. 
but it's really naive to think that it's not going to come into our sport as we're growing exponentially. Yeah. Um, and you know, as far as the previous, like the pledges and, um, you know, the websites, I don't know where you sign something, it's all good hearted, but it really does nothing. And, you know, I would just, I just told these guys, listen, this is real. This is someone showing up at your door asking you to piss in a cup. Like this is not a pledge. So I just don't, <laughs> this is exactly what I don't want it to look like. So uh, Char- Charlie, can I tell you how much I appreciate your honesty there? Because it's hard, it's hard for a lot of elite athletes to say things like that because they don't want to be anti anti-doping efforts. Right. And a lot of the pledges and even courts, which you're critical of at the very beginning of it. And by the way, I share all of those criticisms to an even greater extent. That's another podcast. But it's very, very, very difficult for elite athletes to look at any anti-doping quote unquote effort, a pledge, hashtag clean sport on Twitter, kind of whatever it is, and, and apply criticism to that because immediately they have this they have this uh, spotlight cast on them where they are anti-anti-doping efforts. And so just the fact that you're able to call a spade a spade, brother, like I, I, I appreciate that about you, man. Uh, you know, I don't have a big sponsorship or anything, so I got none to <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so lastly, I think it's, it's the big one. And this is the one that really stalled it out. Um, it's the false positives. And that actually has a a segue into the the bigger problem with false positives. So I know you've talked about this with your, or you're going to talk about it with um, the USADA doctor. Um, But just to give you a brief uh, recap on what the the problem is here is, okay, well, what if there's a false positive and then we get busted and it was a contaminated supplement that we were taking and then we're screwed and our career's over. Well, the reality is there aren't really any false positives. The tests are extremely accurate. So it is a positive positive, but it could be from a contaminated supplement or some wacky supplement from some company that puts banned substances in it. And so that situation really sucks. And it, it does come up. It has come up in a lot of other sports and these athletes, you know, yes, they could have done better education. They didn't. Do they deserve to be punished? Not, not really. They need their name cleared because they were taking this wacky supplement. And then the big problem is to have your name cleared. If something like that happens to you, um, and let's just say you're taking this multivitamin and it was in this facility that has a banned substance in it. The tests are so accurate that it could trigger, right. um, Right. To clear your name would involve several retests, potentially having that supplement and, anything, any other things that you're eating or taking in all third party tested. And so you're looking at a process that could be from 10 to $50,000 to clear your name from this situation. And that's what we don't have money for. We have the money to get the testing, but this retesting to clear someone's name presents a huge issue. And it's almost like we need some type of insurance program, this big pot of money that can help people if they get caught in this situation. I did have some thoughts on how that could happen and how we could create like an insurance pot. Um, like for instance, I got contacted the run rabbit run race directors, uh, Paul and Fred up there. And I was like, would you guys just want to donate that $160,000 pot to the ultra? <laughs> and they were cool. They're like, hell yeah, but you got to bring a bunch of elites to our race. Nice. <laughs> I like that. You guys got a bunch of money to throw around. Can we have some of it? That's a good it's a huge pot. So, <laughs> that was an idea. Um, but we would have, you know, it would be a, there would be no prize money that year and we, we would have to commit to a lot of elites going uh, or maybe just, you know, crowdsource it and send it out to, you know, the, the interweb and see if we can get a bunch of people to throw in money. So we have this insurance program, um, but you know, whoever, however we do it, there, there does need to be something in place there to help people if they get caught in a situation. And I think that was where we stalled out yeah. because that's where it got tricky. And, and I sure as hell don't want, to be responsible for somebody getting caught in a situation like that where like their career and their life is on the line. That's, that is the sticking point with any anti-doping effort, whether it's something at a race or uh, a continual athlete monitoring as, as you were trying to put in place. What does the adjudication look like? When somebody tests positive, what are the steps that need to happen in order to verify that positive test? Or 
what are the steps so that the athlete can say, listen, this is the, this is what happens and who owns and pays for that process. Always very tricky, usually very expensive, as you mentioned, because that involves retesting and sometimes legal fees and things like that. So it's, it's a, it's a, the way that I thought about it when I saw that same feedback coming from the athletes is it's a known issue and, but not one without solutions that already exist in other organizations, whether that be insurance or finding other sources of funding. So it, it, it is 100% a stumbling block, but some, I think I view it as something that is ultimately surmountable given enough time and reasonable action amongst the actors that are trying to orchestrate the solution. Yeah. I I think you're right. However, I still wouldn't feel comfortable launching the program until there was something in place. Yeah. 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 Cause you have to be fair to the athletes, right? And this is, this is always one of the issues with anti-doping programs is whenever you take a maximalist approach, either let's ban everybody for life for any infraction or the other maximalist approach is just like let everybody do whatever they want and show up to the starting line. Whenever you take like either one of those uh, uh, approaches, there's nowhere to negotiate from there. You always have to start out with reasonable solutions. And unfortunately, one of the stumbling blocks with the reasonable solution is, is what do you do when people actually get caught? Because ultimately, if an anti-doping program is effective, you are catching people. Like you're going to have that happen. That's completely realistic in any sort of rules, any rules. Let's just take it out of, out of doping. Anytime you have any rules, you have to be in a position to where you're going to ultimately enforce some sort of aspect when somebody breaks the rules. And this is a big one. Right. Right. It, that was another thing too. It's like, well, how do we enforce this as a collective? Um, if say somebody is, you know, it's been retested. It's been proven. You know, this person was doping. Right. What do we do? Right. Now? What's the and penalty? I, exactly. What's the penalty? And I thought that was actually pretty easy is, you know, USADA makes their, um, you know, they, they post it on their website. Yep. So it's they do a public announcement of it and then just let it be up to the race directors. And most races already have a zero tolerance policy. So it, that, that portion is pretty easy to me. It would just be you saw to post it and then races can do what they want with that information. Sponsors can do it as well. Most sponsors have uh, policies within their sponsor, within their sponsorship that they yeah. can relieve the athlete of the sponsorship if they run afoul of any, of anything like this. Totally. And actually now that you brought up sponsorship, that was a big part of it too, is relaying the cost to sponsors after the, after the program got launched and building the fee into contracts. So you say, when you go to resign it, say, hey, you need to cover my uh, $375 fee of the collective and then I'll sign the contract. And how cool would that be for the sponsors to be the ones, you know, paying for all the athletes to be in this collective? I, I thought that was a nice way to take the, the money stress off the athletes and just put it, build it right into contracts. That's something Obviously, that- they have a, a sponsored contract, but... You know, it, it could be something that builds into them putting more money into the sport and investing in the the integrity of the sport, which is really going to serve them in the long run too. That that's something I'm glad you brought that up, Charlie. So the athletes are footing the bill, right? And initially, initially, for, let's just call four hundred bucks, right? Just to yep. make the kind of make the number even. That's a reasonable cost for some people, but some people are going to look at that and go, listen, I don't, I don't, I don't, my money's better served elsewhere. I got kid on the way. You've got a child on the way, right? You got to save for college and things like that. Um, did you get any pushback from the athletes on either the initial cost or if they were to extrapolate into, into future years, what that ultimately might be? Because there are no guarantees as to, is that cost going to go up, down or stay sideways? Right. Um, I did, uh, just from a couple folks and it was totally legit. We had a good conversation about it and my solution was, well, what can you contribute? And we'll just put that into the funds and that's fine. And that, that'll be what you can contribute. This is what we're asking for. You know, it's, it's a, it's a pool of athletes and we're getting X amount of tests. So what, what can you donate? And that was, you know, if maybe they throw in a hundred bucks and Hey, you're in the pool. All right. Okay. So we're going through this, man. The only thing that I can think of is, is this all sounds so simple and reasonable. It's right. It's a, it's reasonable from a cost perspective. It has external management. USADA is managing it. The athletes control the destiny. 
So where's the hangup? Where's the ultimate hangup? Because it doesn't exist right now, right? That treasure chest we need is insurance. I think that is the hangup. That's the hangup in my mind because it scares the shit out of me that someone will be caught up. And and I've heard a horror story of an athlete going to, you know, I think it was UTMB and they got caught up in this process and it, it cost them tens of thousand dollars to clear their name from a tainted supplement. Yeah. And that is horrifying to me that someone would have to go through that because of this. So I, I won't go anywhere until there's a big pot of money <laughs> with this, with this collective that, that can help people if they get caught. So, in a situation. so where does it stand right now, Charlie? I mean, I saw the initial conceptual documents from, from, from my athletes. Once again, tr- I tried to educate them as much as possible. I actually went over to the USADA offices and I met with them personally about this just to ask them how I could help and with the principal people that were involved. But where, where does it stand right now? Well, I think where it left is, you know, USADA, I did, I talked to them extensively and they were down. They're like, cool, we're going to, we just opened up a UFC program and the next up we're going to have an ultra running program. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they're like, whatever you guys want. The budget like, on those are completely incomparable though. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> maybe you just siphon some money from that UFC fund oh, <laughs> into the, the, the I mean, mountain hippie running fund. <laughs> we're not going to be nearly as problematic as the fighters though. That's another know, story. Right? That's another story. Uh, so anyway, sorry. So where, so, so you saw it as down. Why, do, why don't we see it? I guess is what I'm asking. Athletes were down and, and it just, it just stalled out because of that. And to be honest with you, I lost steam after that where it, I just poured so much energy, like, you know, physically and emotionally into getting this thing going. And I just couldn't, I couldn't keep going and figure out the, the next part, the next solution without having more, there, there were a lot of athletes who totally helped and were very instrumental. And I wasn't going at it alone. I'll tell you that too. You know, a, a lot of them were awesome. Kyle Patari just got to give him a shout out because he's a lawyer and he brought his lawyer brain into it. And he was really helpful and awesome uh, amongst a bunch of other folks. But I think where it is now is it's, it's there, it's out in the atmosphere now and in the, the the framework is in place and it just needs someone else to to take it and run with it. That's not training to try to podium at Western States. (laughs) You know, it needs somebody who's not, uh, who's outside of the, the pool to, to figure it out, how it's going to work, figure out those financials, how to set up the account. Um, I, I just kind of need to pass the torch on to somebody because I'm, I'm just too busy right now too. I got a kid on the way and I'm full-time job and I'm training like crazy. And I, personally, I just got burnt out on it. So that's where it's at. Well, here's the thing. So this is going to go out publicly to my tens of millions of listeners. (laughs) It's not really that many, not even close. This is going to go out to the ultra running community, right? And there's going to be people that hopefully, and I, and I, and I am very hopeful for this, that want to, that want to take up the mantle. And what I want to emphasize to the listeners and Charlie, I want you to opine on this as well. What Mm -hmm. I want to emphasize to the listeners, it is that something like this is going to take our own community's elbow grease to get over the line. Mm -hmm. Ultra runners, we are a really stubborn, persistent lot. We do these crazy, stupid things. We torture our bodies and things like that. We are a community that is set up exactly for things like this. We are set up to to persevere and push through and create our own solutions. So if there's a failure of this type of program, we're going to own it as a community. It's, it's kind of all on us. We can't rely and we're not going to be able to rely on a USA track and field, on a USA triathlon, on another national governing body to implement these solutions. So I kind of put my, I'm both because this has been so long, let's timestamp this for a little, for, for everybody, Charlie, pre COVID is when you were working this, what year? Uh, let's see. I think it was 2018 is when this 2018. So three years, right. Going on three, 2019. Okay. Two, three years, I guess is a significant, a significant period of time is kind of what I was trying to get across, even with COVID kind of, kind of, kind of interrupting it. But what I wanted to say is, is I'm personally as a member of the community and I raised my hand as somebody who could have worked a little bit harder to, 
to help push this across the line sooner. I'm sim- I'm simultaneously optimistic because we do have a lot of willpower and horsepower behind us that people can actually get this done. But I'm also disappointed that it hasn't crossed the line sooner than this. And that's no disrespect to you, Charlie, but I, because you're doing the, you're doing all the work or most of the work, you and Kyle. Um, I, I, I would like to see more people actively get more involved and help push it across the line, more horsepower, more people put your actions and your money and your uh, whatever you can contribute behind your mouth, because there's a lot of people that will talk. There's a lot of people out there that'll say, yeah, you know, we need to do this. We need to do that. We need to do the other. But there needs to be just as many people talking as actually acting when we have solutions like this, because it does. It takes a lot of freaking human power to get these solutions across the line. It's not like we're going to snap our fingers and all of a sudden there's a solution. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Yep. It's a good call out. I think, you know, people know what the hiccups are and if some folks have ideas and how we can get around it and figure this out, that would be amazing. Um, it sounds like, you know, you are pretty invested yourself and I really feel like I'm passing the torch to you, man. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know, man. I told you and the listeners will know this from listening to the previous podcast is when this initially came out, I, I I took a step back because I was afraid of the Lance connection and I didn't want to muddy the waters with that. I don't care anymore. Like that, that story is 20 some odd years old. I have no connection with Lance. You know, if people want to make a big deal about it, they can make a big deal about it, but I'd rather, I'd rather take the arrows and help get us, help get a solution across the line than sit on the sidelines and, you know, passively kind of watch nothing. Not that you're doing nothing, but passively kind of watch nothing happen. So whether or not I'm certainly part of that horsepower that I mentioned earlier, I'm having you on my podcast. I've had all these other guests on my podcast. I'm trying to take an active role within within my athletes, but it can't just be me, right? It's a community. And that's what I really want to emphasize. It's a community oriented solution in the community as a whole, particularly the, the, the elite athletes, but also the sponsors, the race directors, the magazines and the media outlets, all of those vested entities need to take an interest in this for the health and the longevity of the sport. Because if we don't, we've seen what happens in other sports and we use the UFC. We just use that. I'll use that as a good example of they got their act together. They got their shit together early enough within the formation of that sport that this isn't an issue 10 years down from down the line. Ultra running has been alive for long enough that we are suspect and there's enough money coming into it that we are suspect to have those, th- have those negative things, have dopers come into the sport 10 years down the line. We have to be looking towards the future in order to keep the sport healthy because trust me, when Charlie, when you and I are old and gray and your kids are graduating high school and things like that, and we look back on the sport and nothing was done and it ends up like cycling was in the 2000s and 2010, we're going to kick ourselves for not doing anything. Uh, You're absolutely right. Yep. It's all all about being preventative as opposed to being reactive. Um, Yeah, man. And and I like, I want folks to think about what the collectives could be outside of testing too. You know, I I mentioned to you at Zane Gray, it was like, you know, what if we had a convention every year, an alternating convention, and we everybody got together and we all went for runs and, you know, drank some beers and hung out and had, you know, keynote speakers. It could be a really cool thing. It's like, it's just stuff that, it's cool stuff to think about. As long as those conventions are 90% running and like 10% policy BS, I'd be down for it. That was the All right, man. We're going to leave it there. I, I can't tell you, Charlie, how much I appreciate you, you coming on the podcast and explaining all this. I know that it was a huge part of your life a few years ago and one that did not come with a lot, a lot of like angst and a few premature gray, gray hairs coming along. But trust me, man, I've got faith. Something is going to come of this and it's going to be something that, like I said, 10 or 15 years from now, we're going to look back. You're going to, and you are going to look back specifically and say, I was a big part of getting this started. It might've finished underneath a different, 
you know, group of people or a different person or different management or whatever. But that's something cool to say whenever you can leave a legacy that lasts for a long time and perhaps forever. I always think that that's a real cool thing. And you, you trust me, man, mark my word, you're going to be able to, to do that once this is all said and done. All right. We'll see. Well, I appreciate you having this discussion and you know, it's, it's really cool to talk about something that most folks don't want to talk about. I know I don't even want to talk about it anymore. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, I appreciate you bringing me on and, and we're having this conversation. Yeah, man. So. We'll keep pushing it, man. Always looking forward. Never back. Right. All right. Thanks, Jason. All right, Charlie. All right, folks, there you have it. There you go. Much thanks to Charlie for coming on the podcast today. Thank you for all the previous efforts. We are indebted to this initial seed that you have planted that will hopefully grow into a big, strong group of redwood trees or whatever other ecosystem we can kind of come up with. Um, One of the things that I want to point out that we touched on in the podcast is these solutions are going to require effort. As much as we like to hashtag clean sport and sign pledges and put tattoos on our arms and things like that, and as admirable as those uh, endeavors are, those are not real solutions. Real solutions are policies and procedures and rules that people actually have to abide by. And when they don't, there are consequences to those. Coming up with that rules framework is not an easy task and it's not going to be done overnight, but we have to start somewhere. And somebody like Charlie, we should all hold in high regard because he has started somewhere. So let me know what you think about this particular episode. You guys can hit me up on social media. It's Jason Coop, Coop with a K across Twitter and on Instagram. Let's keep the conversation going, folks. As always, we will see you out on the trails.